Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 71. Last week, I summarized Genesis chapters 42 through 45, introducing only one place, and that was the land of Goshen, one of the topics that I will cover in this week's episode. Also this week, I'll press forward into Genesis chapter 46 and the chapters that follow. So let's get started. The land of Goshen is first mentioned in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 45. It is the place that Jacob essentially gives to his brothers and father so that they may resettle from Canaan into the territory of Egypt. And in the narrative, the area is mentioned several times in the next couple of chapters. It is believed to have been located in the eastern delta of the Nile, in what is today, well, it was then too, the very northern part of Egypt. This place is west of the Sinai Peninsula, and, since it was in the delta, it would be very fertile ground, if there only wasn't a drought. More on that, and the land in the rest of the Bible, in a bit. The name of the land as you would suspect, is not Hebrew, but probably originated in Arabic. It is thought to have meant either the word cultivated or the phrase to labor, as in farm labor. So, once again suggesting it was fertile, and therefore probably valuable land. In some sources, Goshen is portrayed among the finest land in Egypt, suitable for both crops and livestock. In chapter 46, though, verse 34 implies that it was separated from the larger Egyptian population. Jacob's family, as we have seen up to this point, were sheep herders, and the text is very explicit in saying that the Egyptians did not like shepherds. And, apparently the house of Jacob, well, his descendants, continued to live in Goshen, as in Exodus, it states that two of the ten plagues did not strike Goshen. And when Moses led the Israelites from Egypt back to Canaan, they apparently began in Goshen. The area warranted small mentions again in the books of Joshua and Judith, but only for its geographic context. So, that's what we know about Goshen in the Bible. But what about the outside historic record? In the 19th century AD, Edouard Neville, a Swiss archaeologist, began exploring and digging up many of the archaeological sites in the Nile Delta. In doing so, he identified Goshen as an administrative territory of ancient Egypt, with this territory having been located in the eastern portion of the Nile Delta. Apparently, the administrative district lasted through at least the 26th dynasty, which was from about 670 to 525 BC, well after the events of Genesis. Now this location placed it on the western side of the Wadi Tumilat, and therefore near the district of Sukhuz. All of this area was documented in the era as including both grazing and cropland all necessary to support the rest of the Egyptian populace. Other than that, not much is really known about the area, but it apparently had an impact on readers of the Bible, 
as there are no less than 20 cities and towns in the U.S. named Goshen. Which brings me to Genesis chapter 46. In this chapter, Jacob begins his journey towards Egypt. But before he sets out, he had a dream where God made an appearance. In this dream, God told him, quoting from the New Revised Standard Version, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's own hand shall close your eyes." After that, Jacob and his family began the trek. The wagons that Pharaoh allowed them to take proved useful, carrying Jacob himself, the brothers' children, and their wives. Now since they were shepherds, they also took their livestock and much of their material possessions. The text makes note that Jacob's daughters also made the journey, presumably with their husbands, if they were married. Beginning in verse 8 is a list of all of his sons and their children that made the journey, essentially beginning the family tree that will culminate with Moses leading them back to Canaan. Now, I'll spare you the details but you know where to find it. Now having said that, the last two verses of the family tree are interesting and put the migration into context. Quoting again, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own offspring, not including the wives of his sons, were sixty-six persons in all. The children of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy." A rather sizable family. While on the road to Goshen, Jacob sends Judah ahead, and the entire family finally makes it there. Joseph gets the news and hops in his chariot to go to the reunion with his father he had no doubt been dreaming of. The text reads that when they are finally reunited, Joseph presented himself to his father, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, I can die now, having seen for myself that you are still alive. Needless to say, it was an emotional reunion. And Jacob didn't die, at least not then. The text continues, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers in my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our ancestors, in order that you may settle in the land of Goshen, because all shepherds are abhorrent to the Egyptians." And Joseph, at least in my mind, seems to have an underlying motivation. He wants to keep his family separate from the Egyptians. And that's the end of chapter 46, with no new places, people, or concepts. Remember a while back when I told you things would speed up? Well, this is one of those periods. But keep in mind, there will be times in the future when progress seems to slow. 
especially when the text gets dense in people and places. But, for now, it's a storytelling narrative, a narrative that revolves around the same characters and in the same general location. Moving along to Genesis chapter 47. In the beginning of this chapter, and as was alluded to just a minute ago, Joseph presents his family to Pharaoh, but not all of them. He picks five of his brothers. And that leads me wondering who was in and who was out. Now the text is silent, but I'm thinking that Benjamin definitely was there, even though he was still very young. Reuben was probably there owing to being both the oldest and having tried to stand up for Joseph. Sort of. But Judah, well, as the master of the plot to sell Joseph, I could see why he would have been left out. But then again, he gave a great speech. And in a few minutes, I'll cover Jacob's thoughts on his sons, which may have had some bearing on who spoke with Pharaoh. All speculation. Just as Joseph had told them, Pharaoh asked about their occupations, and they answered as they were instructed. They also elaborated on the famine in Canaan. Pharaoh then tells Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know that there are capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. It seems that Pharaoh had enough trust in Joseph to believe that sort of wisdom and responsibility ran through the family. Next, it was Jacob's turn to present himself to Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks Jacob how old he is, and Jacob gives the benevolent dictator more detail than he probably expected. The text reads, Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my earthly sojourn are 130. Few and hard have been the years of my life. They do not compare with the years of the life of my ancestors during their long sojourn. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Joseph settled his father and his brothers and granted them a holding in the land of Egypt, in the best part of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had instructed. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. End quote. Then, we switch gears and focus on the general events in Egypt. The text gives us a recounting of how severe the continued famine was. During this time, Joseph, acting on the behalf of Pharaoh, apparently sold grain to the Canaanites as well as the Egyptians. In fact, according to the text, the venture was running so well that he, quoting, collected all the money to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. End quote. For emphasis, all of the money to be found in the area, a monopoly unlike anything that exists in our current Western world. And one other note, Pharaoh, with Joseph acting as his agent, was doing this to his own people, too. In the years of plenty, he either seized or bought the grain from the people, the text is silent on which, and then he sold it back to them, 
At best, it shows that the adage of buy low and sell high has been around for over 3,000 years. Moving along, when the people of the region had no more money and no more food, they went to Joseph and demanded that he give them the food before they starved to death. Then Joseph told them they could exchange your livestock for food, which seems a little odd. Shouldn't the livestock have been starving too? And if you were starving, wouldn't you eat your livestock? Anyway, they did as he suggested and brought their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. Apparently, the exchange of livestock for food provided enough for the people to get by for another dry year. A small note, the previous list of livestock was from the New Revised Standard Version. The King James lists cattle instead of herds and uses a different, more colorful word for donkeys. The New International also lists cattle instead of herds, and instead of flocks, it lists sheep and goats. But in reality, there are no differences between the versions and all three really drive home the point of how desperate the people were. After all, their livestock were a significant portion of their assets and their promise of a future. The next year, of course, the famine continued, and the people came back saying, We cannot hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the herds of cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Shall we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We with our land will become slaves to Pharaoh. Just give us seed, so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate." End quote. And Pharaoh, with Joseph once again acting as his agent, took the people up on their offer. He bought their land and cast them into slavery in exchange for food. The text also points out that only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land." The narrative wraps up with Joseph saying to the people, Now that I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh, here is seed for you, sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. They said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be slaves to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, that Pharaoh shall have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's." But that's not quite the end of the chapter. Instead, we are circled back to Jacob, just for a second, and as a prelude to chapter 48. The narrative tells of how his family prospered in Goshen, gaining both possessions and the family itself growing in number, which shows that they were excluded from the previous portion of the narrative about Egyptians becoming slaves. As he was nearing death, when he was 147 years old, Jacob summons Joseph and says to him, If I have found favor with you, 
put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal loyally and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I lie down with my ancestors, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he, meaning Jacob, said, Swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. And the chapter concludes. So, in chapter 47, just like the last several, there were no new places, historical people, or concepts. Moving along to chapter 48. In the first part of the chapter, apparently a little time has passed as Joseph has journeyed from Goshen. He is then told that his father is sick. So he and his sons make the trip to Goshen to visit Jacob. We later learn that Jacob has apparently never met Joseph's sons. When Joseph arrives, Jacob gathers his strength and addresses his son. Jacob reminds Joseph of the blessing God bestowed on him so many years ago. He then passes that blessing along to Joseph's sons, but not in the manner Joseph had hoped. His father showed a preference for Joseph's youngest, a preference that Joseph didn't quite agree with. However, he does tell Joseph that his sons shall be treated as if they were Jacob's sons. And Jacob discloses Joseph's inheritance will be more than that of his brothers. All of this once again showing he was his father's favorite. And that ends chapter 48. Again, with no new places, people, or concepts. Which, of course, gets me to chapter 49. In the text, Jacob summons all of his sons to bestow their individual blessings, and his words are generally regarded as poetic, meaning not to be taken literally, but as allusions to what is to come. And he didn't hold back, which is a very polite way of not really saying what he did. His last words to some of his sons were probably not very pleasing to them. To Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, he hurls a few not very nice words, foreshadowing the smaller territory their tribes will receive much later. He praises Judah and goes on for a minute on how his descendants will rule over those of his brothers, which helps to explain why later, when the territory of the Promised Land is divided, the house of Judah is allotted so much more than that of his brothers. Now this, remember, is the same Judah that was the master of the plot to sell his brother, Joseph. Zebulon was given a coastal region, and therefore a port, with its border at Sidon. And, at last, we have a new place to cover, and that is Sidon. But that Lebanese city will have to wait until next week. Issachar was referred to as a strong donkey, which for the time was probably a compliment. Dan was appointed as a judge of his people. But then Jacob says that Dan shall be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backwards. Which in our modern world seems like an odd thing to say to a judge. Many interpreters relate this passage to the tribe of Dan's most well-known judge, and that is Samson believing that the tactical snake might have been foreshadowing the way Samson dealt with the Philistines. 
Jacob then says that Gad shall be raided by raiders, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall provide royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears lovely fawns. He then gets to his favorite and addresses Joseph, whom he calls a fruitful bough, meaning a branch of a tree. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Archers fiercely attack him. They shot at him and pressed him hard. Yet his bow remained taut, and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. By the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are stronger than the blessings of the eternal mountains, the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. End quote. And before moving on, there's one thing to note, and that is the usage of the word shepherd. While the word itself was used a few times earlier in Genesis, this is its first use in the entire Bible in a figurative sense, referring to God's relationship with man. So, when you read Psalms 23, or much of the wisdom of Jesus, this is where the use of that word originates, with Jacob's last words to Joseph. Then, lastly, he addresses Benjamin as a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. And, as a note, later in the Old Testament, we will see that there is no tribe of Joseph, and instead there are the tribes named after his sons, fulfilling Jacob's promise about making Joseph's sons as if they were his own. And Levi doesn't get a tribe at all but only because he is considered the father of all priests. Finally, Jacob said, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan, in the field that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite as a burial site. End quote. Now that's the second time he's mentioned where he wanted to get buried, and I guess he really wanted to make sure he was buried with his ancestors. And then after this, of course, he died. So, we first met Jacob in Genesis chapter 25, and the narrative of his life and that of his sons while he was living last until chapter 50, which I'll cover next week. My point today is that I am 50 chapters into Genesis, and half of these chapters are devoted to Jacob, more than Adam, Noah, Abraham, and all the other people combined. Obviously, Jacob was very important to the early religion. And that's the thought I'll end this episode on. Join me next week when I'll cover Sidon. If time permits, I'll also summarize chapter 50. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. 
As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave us a review. Doing so, of course, helps others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.